Some of you might have grown up in a religious environment similar to the one that I grew up in. And in that environment, there was a question often hanging in the air. Uh, it was a question that would be asked for the first time of some people. And then it would be asked over and over again in their future as a way of sort of checking in on their relationship to what we believed and what we had experienced. And, and the question was this, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? I don't know if you've been asked that question. I don't know if you've answered that question, but it was a question that was with us in my upbringing. And it's a question that I said yes to uh, on a very particular moment uh, at a point in time. And it's a question I've said yes to uh, again and again since that point. And I love this question. And the thing I love most about it is how soulish it is. Because I know that every time I heard this question about accepting Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior, there was this feeling around it, this sort of shared understanding that what we were talking about was something that happens inside. This interior decision, awareness, experience, commitment, something that you might say happens in the soul. Like this was a question about the soul and it described something happening in the soul and it affected the future of the soul. And I, I like that because I think the soul is really important. And I think if we don't talk about the soul, we miss something important about being human. Uh, there's a writer named David Brooks, uh, who I'm a big fan of. Uh, David Brooks says that the soul, uh, for him at least, is, is the, the place where he locates our shared dignity. Uh, because he says it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor or young or old. It doesn't matter where you grew up or what you've done with your life. Everybody has a soul. Nobody has more of a soul than somebody else. Nobody has less of a soul than somebody else. And so he says it's the basis of human dignity and shared belonging. Uh, there's another teacher who says that the soul is the animating breath or principle in a person's life that we live out of the soul, whether we know it or not. So I think it's really good to talk about the soul. And I think it's really good to think about this encounter with God that we describe when we ask if you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I think it's really good uh, to locate that thing in the soul because of all the things that come from the soul. Now, um, these words like Lord and Savior and Son of God, these words that we use to talk about Jesus and that often have been used to describe an inner experience of Jesus, they come uh, from the Bible, at least that's why we use them. And so places like Luke 2, like in the Christmas story where the angels announce the birth of Jesus, we hear about him being Lord and Savior and a message of peace. And in places like 1 Corinthians 12 and 15 and like all over the New Testament, there's lots of places in the Bible where Jesus is talked about as Lord and Savior and Prince of Peace and Son of God. And so for us, like these terms come from the Bible. And for many of us today, they describe a, what you might call like an inner spiritual experience of the soul. I think that's good, I think it's beautiful. It's not the whole story though, especially because these terms like Lord and Savior and Son of God, they don't originally come from the Bible. When the Bible uses them, it's borrowing them from a context that its original hearers were steeped in. So let's go back a little bit before the time of the New Testament, a little bit before the time of Jesus and when the biographies of him were written. Let's go about 40 years prior and talk about a man named Julius Caesar. Uh, if you remember a little bit of history, you might know that Julius Caesar was killed in March, the Ides of March in the year 44 BC. Uh, well, later that same year in July, a comet streaked across the sky. And some of the people who observed that comet and were reflecting on the momentous assassination of Caesar decided that that comet was a sign for them of Caesar ascending to be one of the gods. 
Well, then about two years later, uh, Julius Caesar is sort of officially, formally divinized by the community. And then you have Octavius, Caesar's adopted son, who takes the name Augustus, who then, because he's the adopted son of Julius Caesar, who seems to have gone to be with the gods, it becomes commonplace to speak of Augustus Caesar as the son of God and as Lord and Savior and Prince of Peace. And we have all kinds of evidence that by the time Jesus hits the scene, it's, it's common to speak of the emperor with these kinds of words like Lord and Savior, Prince of Peace, um, and even to speak of the salvation that comes from the emperor. Now, the reason I bring all that up is because I think for a lot of us today, when we think about Jesus as Lord and Savior, uh, we think of the soul, and I think that's really good. But I think when these words were first used to talk about Jesus, I think the people that heard them, they wouldn't have just thought about the soul. I think they would have also thought about the system. I think they would have thought about the arrangement of power in the world. I think they would have thought about governments and politics and all of the ways that we use our power to build the world and all the ways that some people seem to have more power than other people. Uh, I think for uh, a community that had heard words like Lord and Savior used to speak of the emperor, for them to then hear these words used to speak of Jesus would tell them that Jesus isn't just here to deal with the soul, he's also here to deal with the system in some really important way. And so uh, today and for the next several weeks, we wanna talk about the soul and the system together. Now, when I talk about the soul and the system, or when I indicate that we might talk a little bit about politics in church, there's often this pushback, right? Which is like, man, religion and politics, they should not mix, they don't mix, they don't belong together, don't put them together. It's nasty when they get together. We've seen it go badly when people try to mix religion and politics. And I understand all of that because I've seen some really, really ugly, terrible ways that religion and politics have mixed or ways that we try to sort of merge the soul and the system and it doesn't do good things. But my problem with the idea of keeping these things separate is they're not separate, right? So like think about like the ways that we pray sometimes straight from the scriptures, straight from the Bible. Prayer, you might think, is that thing that the soul does. It's a personal, intimate, private sort of thing that we do, but we pray for things from the scripture like justice rolling like a mighty river. We pray for the poor to be lifted up and the hungry to be fed and the captives to be released. So we pray for these things that are like very obviously words about the system and I don't know how often you can pray for or sing about or dream about or preach about these things like the poor being lifted up and the hungry being fed and the captives being released and justice rolling. I don't know how long you can do that before you turn your attention to the system because the system is the place where the poor aren't being fed and, or the hungry aren't being fed and the poor aren't being lifted up. In fact, they're being kept down and justice isn't happening in all sorts of ways. So like our prayers are political whether we know them or we know it or not and the scriptures scream about things that are active in the system that we're supposed to care about. And there are aspects of the system that are so deeply religious that we don't seem to notice. I remember a few years ago, I went to an NFL football game and I uh, had not been to an NFL football game in quite a while. And uh, this particular week that I was there at the game was also um, a week for a certain national holiday. And so, this football game, I, I have never seen such a gratuitous display 
of the religion of the United States, of patriotism. I mean, we had fighter jets and soldiers on the field and every commercial break when the play action stopped, the big jumbotrons were used for uh, banners of waving American flags and songs were played and people in the crowd were becoming visibly ecstatic in their excitement, in their emotion, in their devotion to the system that we were celebrating. We're in the United States and we're here to celebrate our country and the people who have sacrificed for our country. And you couldn't go to that game with an objective lens and not recognize that the system was working on our souls. It was steeping us in a certain way of hoping and dreaming and trusting and a certain way of thinking about the way that the world is ordered. Like, I'm completely aware that it can get really messy when the soul and the system uh, are brought together or when we talk about like, religion and politics. The problem is if we don't talk about it, it doesn't change the fact that they are already deeply intertwined. And when there are things that are acting on us and operative in the world that we're not talking about, that just creates the possibility of uh, far more sinister and heinous and dysfunctional things. And so we have to talk about it. For the next few weeks, uh, we want to talk about the soul and the system. Uh, today, I just kind of wanted to make my case. Uh, some of us have been taught that Jesus, that religion, that God, that the kingdom of God is entirely a private matter of the soul. And it's just not true. Like you can't read the Bible uh, with some understanding and arrive at that conclusion. And others of us have been taught that perhaps the system is this thing that we can work on without working on ourselves. As, as if all the problems are located in the system and none of the problems are located with us, as if we have no personal work to do. And that just doesn't bear out. I've said this before, like some people I know are quite, quite convinced of uh, the sinfulness of the human soul, but they, they don't think there's any sin in the system. And I'll, I'll push them on it a little bit and I'll ask like, wait, so you believe that within the human soul is a, a dangerous capacity for evil and darkness. And you believe we all have that, all the billions of humans on planet Earth. And they'll say, yeah. And I'll say, but you think the things that, that emerge from our collective work aren't going to be marked by that same problem? Other people I know will be quick to say that the system has problems, that the system needs work, but are really wary of any language about the soul or personal sin or the work that we need to do on our own. And I'll ask him, I'll say, wait, see, so you think that this whole system, this thing that we built has intrinsic within it all kinds of problems and hurts and violations and violence. And yet, like you think it just sort of emerged out of nowhere or is it possible that the, the way that we ended up with a broken system is that broken people were working on it? I, I think these two hold together in pretty obvious ways and we need to talk about both um, because we have souls and we are here to work on the system uh, because our souls are shaped by the system, whether we know it or not, and because the system, uh, I really believe, is in many ways the result of what comes from our collective souls and, and the, the, the greed and the hope and the violence and the love that all dwells within. It all sort of gets worked out in the system. So we're going to talk about it. In the next few weeks, we're going to talk about power and identity and fear we're going to talk about idolatry and justice. We're going to talk about belonging. We're going to talk about the church in all of this. Like, what is the church? What is she here for in all of this? We're going to talk about imagination and we're going to talk about love. Now, as we work through the next few weeks, whether uh, you join us at Four Winds Field or whether you tune in through the videos here, 
Uh, I want to be really clear. Um, I want to tell you three things about where I'm coming from. And then I want to propose three things that I'm hoping for from our community, for three sort of expectations for all of us. So first of all, three things about where I'm coming from. One, uh, I actually love being an American. Like I, I take pride in it. Uh, I, I love our country. I, I like waking up in the United States. Um, I like the story that I'm a part of as an American. I think it's a hopeful one. And I think it's, uh, has within it aspirations that we should all be rooting for. Um, so the first thing you should know about where I'm coming from is like, I really, really like uh, being an American. I know it's a privilege and it's not one that I want to take lightly, but I'm proud of it. Second thing about where I'm coming from is in the last several years, I have learned from, sat with, wept with, I have ached with um, so many sisters and brothers who either are also here as Americans with me, who experience this country very differently than I do, and, or, or uh, brothers and sisters from other places in the world who, who see American power and identity very, very differently uh, because of the experiences that they've had. You know, I mean, um, I think it's pretty easy for somebody like me to be really, really happy about, about being an American because we don't have a constitution that ever called me three-fifths of a person or denied me the vote. Uh, but of course, uh, uh, our black brothers and sisters, uh, women in this country, uh, are going to have a different relationship with our history than, than I do. Uh, around the world, I think it's one thing if you see America as an ally, if you see that the way that we exercise our military power or economic power as working on your behalf, it's a whole other thing. If you see the, the way that we exercise those powers um, as defeating you or your people, uh, if it's your family members who live in the villages where the drone bombs drop, you're gonna see this thing differently. If it's your people who um, see US military might aligned with a power that's occupying your land, you're gonna see all this very differently. So I, um, I sit where I sit and I have the experiences I have, and I really love this country. And I also have sat with and learned from and wept with sisters and brothers, both here and abroad, who have very good reason to see it very differently. And then the third thing that you should know about where I'm coming from during these uh, several weeks is in spite of everything I just said about like being an American and being proud of that fact, in spite of all of that, uh, this is not a sermon about being an American. This is not a series about being an American. I'm not trying to angle for a generic political philosophy or a generic American philosophy. My job as a pastor is to try to work out with you together in community, what is Jesus calling us to? And what does it look like to be faithful to the kingdom of God in this moment? And so there are a lot of good ideas out there about how to occupy the system and how to tend to the soul. And I'm open to all of it, but I'm explicitly interested in uh, what does Jesus have to say about this? And so um, there's a lot of things you're not going to hear me uh, explore uh, or some angles that I may not come from uh, because my job in, in this project and our job as a Jesus-centered community is to ask ourselves what it looks like to follow Jesus with the soul and the system. Now, uh, a few things that I'm hoping for from our community, like this is what I'm hoping that you'll be willing to bring to this conversation. Uh, first of all, um, It'll be really, really tempting, whether you're watching the video or going to Four Winds Field, to have some other person or group of people in mind. They might be members of your family or members of another political party, and you might have them in mind, and you might show up primarily hoping that I'm gonna say something to them. Because darn it, like they need to get their 
their act straight and they need to hear some things that they're not hearing and they need to be confronted with some stuff. And I understand that's a very natural temptation, especially when there are very real injustices at play in the world. But my ask is please don't do that. Uh, every one of us needs to come to this conversation first asking like, what do I need to hear? Where do I need to be challenged? What needs to be pushed back on in me? What needs to be called out in me? And I'm gonna ask you to do that first. Second thing, um, please hear the whole thing. Uh, there's gonna be some nuance. We're gonna stack some layers over the next several weeks. And so you might hear one week of this conversation or one part of a sermon and be pretty flustered because maybe there's something important I didn't say. Uh, please like hear the whole thing, like hang with us through this whole conversation over the next several weeks because um, there's a lot that needs to be said and we can't say it all at once. And then the third thing uh, I just need to like call out is I'm not gonna be able to say everything and do everything. And that's okay because sermons can't ever do all the work. I think at best a sermon uh, can provoke a conversation, can crack some things open, and can challenge all of us to do our own work with God and one another uh, in the days ahead. And so that's uh, the other thing I'm asking for, is like, do your own work. Uh, I'm gonna try to do my part here and try to serve this community with this series, uh, but we all have work to do. And it means uh, getting a little bit humble and opening ourselves up and doing some thinking and some conversations, but also asking God to lead us in the process of discerning how it is that we live up to the, the, the imperatives of the soul and the demands of the system so that we can build the world uh, that we are called to build. Uh, Southland City Church, uh, friends, was actually founded in this context. Uh, it's easy for me to forget. Uh, we're barely... I mean, if you count Sundays, like when we started doing Sundays, we're barely three years old. In fact, it was during the last presidential election that we were just forming as a community, meeting on Wednesday nights at the Brick, sort of pre-church launch. And there's a couple of moments in that history I'll never forget. One is um, the Wednesday after the Access Hollywood tapes came out and we heard Donald Trump speaking about women in uh, incredibly violent and inappropriate ways. And I remember at that gathering that Wednesday night after those tapes were released, I remember just telling our church, all I said was, uh, hey, if you're a woman in our gatherings, I, I'm really sorry that we have built a world where men can speak of you like that and where men act toward you like that with impunity, where it's laughed off as locker room talk. That's all I said. And the thing that surprised me most uh, was the women I heard from the next day who were livid with me because they thought I was taking a pro-Hillary stance. Whereas I thought I was just taking a, a pro-women uh, anti-sexual violence stance. Um, I remember the day after the presidential election in 2016 because the election was on a Tuesday and then we were gathering on a Wednesday and I woke up that Wednesday morning to an inbox full of emails from people who were scared to come to church. And some of them were scared to come to church because the outcome of that election made them feel uh, unsafe in the world. And others were afraid to come to church because they felt like they were being villainized uh, online or by the people in their life because of the vote that they had cast in that election. Um, this stuff is not easy, but it's always been sort of part of the South and City Church experiment. And we're not trying to be flippant about it. We're not trying to play with fire like, like immature kids. Uh, but we've always believed that church is high stakes precisely because we have to talk about these kinds of things. Uh, because uh, we have to do the work of both the soul and the system if we're going to be living up to what a church really is. Now, um, 
A few years ago, I was in Washington, D.C. for some fancy pants meetings. Uh, I had to, like I had to buy clothes I didn't have so I could show up to these meetings. Uh, I was at the White House for a meeting with some staffers for the president. I was at Capitol Building for a meeting with members of Congress. And I went to dinner one night. It was a fancy pants dinner in D.C. It's one of those dinners where there's you know a little name card at every place at the table so you know where to sit. And uh, I sit down at my place. And then right next to me sits down uh, this, this guy. And I look at him. And I think, I think it's, it's like a really uh, famous and important dude. And if it's the person I think it is, he's been called the most, the, the most important, powerful person in Washington that you've never heard of. But I'm a bit of a geek and a walk, so I pay attention to that kind of stuff. And I look over at his name tag, and sure enough, it's him. And so, like, I don't know this guy at all, right? But I, but I know him for my understanding of the part that he plays in the system. And I won't tell you who he is because it's not really important, like, what part he plays, uh, except to say that he plays a significant part in the politics of the United States. And so we, we sort of like introduce ourselves and we try to figure out whose bread plate is which and like, is the cup on the right your glass of water or is that mine? And during that dinner, uh, we had a kind of soulish conversation. Um, the dinner that we were a part of assumed that we had some things in common in terms of faith and some other convictions and, and that was true. And so we shared that uh, bonding over a shared meal. And uh, it struck me um, that he's the kind of person it would be easy for me to see for his part in the system and to totally disregard the soul and the inherent worth there and the humanizing power of that capacity within him. So we had this really beautiful dinner and I left the dinner uh, really grateful that this figurehead had been humanized in my life because I think that's important. And then I went back to my hotel room and I turned on uh, cable news. And between the dinner and then, he had made his way uh, to a TV station where he was on cable news. And so my dinner partner was there talking to me through my TV screen in an interview in real time. And he was espousing some things that I, I wasn't uh, very excited about, you know, some things that I think are actually wrong with the system. And uh, I could feel myself immediately trying to sort of just discard or forget about the soulish encounter that we had had because it was way easier for him to be a one-dimensional person for me, right? A figurehead, uh, a caricature that I could rail against or have strong feelings about without having any regard for the soul. And then as I like felt that rising up inside me, I reflected on, on uh, my own hypocrisy uh, because I have some part to play in the system too. And you have some part to play in the system too. And uh, if I'm frustrated with this person for how they're stewarding their power, uh, I should probably ask myself when the last time is that I asked how I was stewarding my power and whether I've done it in a way that lives out the mandates of the soul that God has placed within each one of us, the soul that wants to love and to live for justice. Um, you know, if you study the history of Christianity and you look at heresy, heresy is this big, uh, dangerous word for getting something wrong, getting something important wrong, right? Well, if you study the history of heresies in the church, what you discover is almost all the heresies aren't just blatant lies. Heresies about God or Christology or the Bible or whatever. Almost all the heresies, they aren't blatant lies. More often, a heresy is just a half-truth. Like, like a lot of really wrong-headed thinking comes from holding one part of the truth and forgetting about the other. And I think uh, there with my dinner companion, I was tempted to do that. 
And us as a church, we may be tempted to do that. And all of us living in the year 2020 with everything going on, I think some of us are gonna be obsessed with the system at the expense of the soul. And some of us are gonna be so focused on the soul that we forget about the system. And either way, we're gonna get something wrong. And for us to be a faithful church in the year 2020, we've gotta tackle the soul and the system and understand how they interact and how it is that we uh, approach both with some desire uh, to do the right thing. So today and in the weeks ahead, may you know and celebrate the richness of the soul there is within you and within me, within your neighbor, within your enemy, an unassailable, undiminishable capacity. Uh, it's a place of great dignity and power. It animates our lives. And I, I really do believe that the soul is one of the places where we meet God and know God's love. So may you know and celebrate the soul. And may we turn our eyes to the system. May we consider uh, what it is that we have to do about the world that we are creating together. May we be wise and open-minded and uh, sober about our power and about the ways that we hope. May we be clear about our identity and may we be vigilant about fear. May we reject any idolatry. May we work for justice. May we build a, a world of belonging. Uh, may we be a faithful church. And may we see both the soul and the system as places where love can live. Grace and peace, friends. And I hope we see you soon.